Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, it's Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 489 of the podcast. It's November 1st, 2023. Joining me today is Ward Velomot. We're going to be talking about errors, the celebration of errors, the correction of errors, the building of a culture where we can learn from errors and mistakes. So a great episode ahead if you would like to learn more about Ward and, and his work. Look for links in the show notes or go to leanblog.org slash 489. Welcome back to Lean Blog Interviews. I'm Mark Raven and our guest today is Ward Villamot. He is a seasoned C-suite executive. He has over six years of time leading fully remote teams while building technology organizations from the ground up. Uh, that's with companies ranging from 150 to 650 employees and revenues ranging from about 50 to 125 million. He's been doing that across the Americas and in Europe. He is currently the chief product officer and chief technology officer at RealSelf, and he is a technical advisor through his own company. His website is wardvillamont.com. I'll put a link to that in the show notes so we don't have to take time spelling it. Uh, it's a long name, but it's it's there in the show notes. Um, Ward advises startup founders and, and CEOs on their technical roadmaps and their technology organizations, along with lean approaches. So that's why he's here. Ward, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Excellent. Thank you, Mark. It's great to be back. Yeah. And, and when Ward says uh, be back, we recorded an episode of My Favorite Mistake back in November, <laughs> episode 195. I'll put a link to that. In the show notes, and for those uh, who are listening, this is the thing that Zoom does to you. When I when I made the comment about the spelling of his name, Ward was uh, smiling and chuckling, but I don't think it came through in the audio. So just <laughs> just so you know, he wasn't shooting me a glare or anything. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, we yeah, my last name in particular trips up a lot of people, and depending on the family member and where they are in the country, um, I think a lot of people think it's spelled differently. So it's it's a tricky one. <laughs> Um, but I've, I've got I've got the pronunciation and I think the spelling um, down. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Um, so I, I do. You know, we had a great conversation on my favorite mistake, and I encourage people to go check out um, both stories. We got a bonus story from Ward about favorite mistake, and there's going to be some overlap. Where today, you know, I, I originally when Ward and I talked about doing a podcast together, it turned out to be both. But I think the overlap in topic is uh, something Ward has developed and used and written about called celebration of errors. So we yes. will we will get into that. But um, normally we start off here on uh, the Lean Podcast with a, a bit of origin story time. So Ward, you know, kind of tell tell the audience here. Tell us how you first got exposed to Lean. You know, what was some of the context and 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 why did it? Well, what's your story? Yeah. Yes. So story is. It's an interesting sort of circuitous route that actually starts on the proverbial knee of my father. My father uh, spent time in Japan, actually during the military between between wars, uh, but he fell in love with Japan. And as a consequence, as a professional, at some point, um, he was very much uh, engrossed in total quality management, TQM. Mm -hmm. So when I was very young, let's say pre-teens, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, I was reading the books on TQM and, and that management style. And those are the conversations that he and I had around the, again, 
Maddie, quite literal dinner table. So I was very much engrossed in that thinking from a very early age, then spent time in Japan, uh, worked, studied there, ended up being a, a technical Japanese interpreter for Boeing, hmm. uh, where I originally had been employed as an aerospace engineer. But for a while, um, people might know Shingujutsu in the industry as lean consultants. They worked uh, and probably still are working with Boeing on the the uh, Boeing production system, so similar analogous to the Toyota production system. So I was the first full-time employee, uh, employed by Real Self as a Japanese interpreter. And because I am trained as a technical Japanese interpreter, I read, write, and speak at a technical level, like at an engineering level, not grammatically technical, uh, though I guess maybe it is, but like I'm conversant at that technical level. Um, it was a good fit for me. And so I spent really the f- one full year on the proverbial knee of Shingujutsu consultants going around all of um, Boeing's facilities in North America and Australia doing um, Kaizen workshops. Uh, so pretty much being engrossed in it five days, six days a week, you know, for 10 hours a day for, you know, upwards of 52 weeks. And so that was really when I got dumped back into lean um, again and in a lot of instances you know I'd have entire days by myself with the consultants and when they realized uh, on top of being able to speak Japanese I was also an aerospace engineer I spent a lot of time just getting very one-on-one instruction from them and I ended up leaving that and going back to now I said aerospace engineering but I've been programming since I'm five I've been doing this for 45 years so you can date myself but I I was really always doing computational engineering, even when I was at Boeing. So I moved back into software engineering. I was really within the aerospace discipline. I was doing a lot of software development. And so I really got engrossed into agile development, which I would argue is really just an offshoot of lean. And I was getting into it in the early 2000s right around the time Agile Manifesto came out, um, which I wouldn't say I was one of the original signers, but I was one of the very early signers of that and ended up introducing Agile methodology to the Boeing commercial uh, aviation or BCA uh, division at the time. And at that time, there was really no one um, doing anything Agile. It was very waterfall um, very well planned and, and uh, you know, sort of taking a different approach to software development as an example. So I ended up, uh, as a consequence, introducing those concepts to BCA, starting a team, building a product, and eventually realized I really wanted to go even further in it and be more with what I would argue is my tribe of folks, which is much more of a much more incremental iterative approach um, and sort of learn as you go and embrace your ignorance and be be open to making mistakes, using the mistakes as your your vehicle for learning. And so I, I left Boeing and went to Amazon uh, and helped uh, the then startup uh, we know as Amazon Fresh. I think most people know of Amazon uh, Fresh now nationally, but for a long time, we were just a small pilot program, about 40, 40 of us who didn't know better. And uh, so that's where I sort of continue to cut my teeth and continue to sort of... Um, advocate for lean. So that's sort of my origin story. And then since then, it's it's been a long sort of career of being very much in what we call zero to one space. So in tech space, we talk about zero to one, which is starting from nothing to getting to an initial product. 
And so I've spent most of my career, whether it was at Amazon or even Xbox, you could argue Xbox One was a zero to one, to working at the Azure Incubation Group with Techstars, which is an incubation uh, incubator uh, group uh, similar to Y Combinator. Some people are probably familiar with Y Combinator, to you know, creating you know greenfield products for for large, big and small companies, um, including now at you know much smaller smaller companies. So yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for that. Maybe we can go back a couple follow-up questions, you know, to, to the origin Absolutely. story. Um, so I, there's similarities where I first got exposed to Deming and his books because of my dad, who was working at General Motors as an engineer and went to one of the famed um, four-day Deming workshops. Um, so oh, I was wow. going to ask you, was was your dad also Boeing or aerospace or what? No, my, yeah, I, I'm familiar with Deming too. That's that's amazing if you got to go to a workshop. Um, no, my father was working for a small company at the time, Welt Allen, out of central New York. They make medical equipment, uh, boroscopes and endoscopes, um, fiber optics, the rest of that. And so he was an operations manager and it was focused on the manufacturing and the repair of medical equipment. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, do, do you remember, did, did he also have a Deming book on his shelf or did you? Most definitely. Most definitely. Yep. 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 Later. Yeah. No, no, no. Deming, Deming and all that entire history for me was sort of growing up, you know, I think Deming being sort of inarguably, even in Japan, really the godfather of uh, what we think of as lean today. Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah. And, 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 and Toyota, you know, even in, in recent years, still gives credit or pays homage, however you might say that, to, to how mm -hmm. important Deming philosophy is um, to their management system. Um, right. So, boy, so you got all that time with Shingajitsu. And so you, that, that's, I'm, I'm sure, gosh, I mean, there's probably an hour's worth of stories uh, from, <laughs> from all of that. Um, well, here, let me ask you a question first, like being being pedantic maybe about pronunciation or, or language. I don't claim that I, I'm sure there's some of these Japanese lean words that I mispronounce. Is there, is there one in particular that's like nails on the chalkboard to you? If you could give us friendly advice of like, stop mispronouncing. Is, is there one that comes to mind? Maybe? No, I think, I think, uh, no, I mean, it, it gets into the pedantic mix of like Andon versus Andon. Hmm. Uh, it's, uh, that's probably the only one it's not chalk. It's, that's one it, to me, it doesn't bother me because I, I, as an, as an interpreter and just recognizing like, Hey, there is, there is dialect and that's how people pronounce it. And for people in the, in the conversation, everyone gets it. Um, I, I, that's the only one I can think of that sort of stands out as people. And then Kanban, Kanban is, is one that sort of, that's a little bit more because a lot of people say Kanban, uh, for me. It's just it's Kanban and so Kanban to me it just it sounds very different and I and that one is a little harder for me to like make that yeah intuitive leap is like, oh that's what they're talking about like that's probably <laughs> the, it's not much it's not like fingers on the chalkboard but I I sometimes just have to slow down and go oh they mean like in my head I'll sort of <laughs> self correct and go okay like, that's what they're talking about because it, it doesn't immediately translate for me for whatever reason yeah. so I think that's sort of a northeastern thing when I when I hear Kanban yeah. Um, yeah. So maybe back to more substantive issues. I mean, you know, that time with um, the Shingajitsu Sensei. Um, I mean, is is there anything that stands out to you? Whether it was through the events or that one on one time, like something you remember that was like really surprising or counterintuitive that they that they taught you. 
I think the, the it took me time, and I think even years later, there's there's a, a level of human centric design to the Toyota production system that I think oftentimes goes underappreciated by even people who are devotees of of lean and Toyota in product in particular, and how much it's really centric on a very democratized form of leadership. And so to in to imbue your company with lean, like everything else, isn't just a bunch of methodology and process. It's a culture shift that is, I think, really hard to articulate to folks that you can't just mimic these things and expect to get the same results unless you're also willing to adopt some really deep-seated and deep-held beliefs around how you operate, how you think about leadership and what the what the role, what your roles are within organizations. You know, you know, so so much of lean is sort of like, you know, managers manage abnormality, right? The employees, the processes manage normality, right? It speaks to um, a conviction around the roles and responsibilities of, of contributors in your organization up and down. It's, you know, how much of lean is about the top listening down, like your people on the closest to your customer actually know the ground truth better than you as an executive. So your job is to listen to them. And so the communications is always coming up from the bottom, right? Which is a cultural conceit or a cultural norm versus, you know, in the West, we have very much of that top down. Our job is to yell at our employees at the bottom, you know, that theory, the theory X, they don't, they're lazy. They're, you know, so you have to like really appreciate, that's the piece that I don't, that's the piece I really try to harp on is it's all about culture. I was recently doing some consulting for someone in, in Switzerland and they're asking me about, you know, you know, what, C- uh, sorry, I was going to use some acronyms that the, the audience might not know, but continuous integration, continuous deployment that we use in software as an example and how we do the software development life cycle. And I, I kept on just coming back to like, well, it depends on these things. And, he's saying, and he basically said, these are all culture notes. Like these are all cultural notes. Exactly. Every decision you make about your software development cycle, your continuous integration, your environments, your development environment, your tooling, everything, your hiring process, it's an expression of culture. So understand your culture and work back from there. I can't tell you to adopt this process if you don't have this culture because I can I can tell you which processes don't align well with certain certain cultural norms. So that's the that's the biggest piece, I think, around lean. And it's very human-centric. It's a very beautiful um very practical expression of a love for craft and a love for craftspeople that I think really goes underappreciated, particularly in the United States manufacturing that I have seen. That's not saying everyone, but I think that's probably the majority, the general majority. Yeah. Yeah. So um, if we go back to the word, um, I'm going to say it, I have a habit of saying and on, and on. Is that, is that on, but yeah, yeah. Oh, and. Okay. And on. Sorry. It's okay. It's okay. Don't worry. <laughs> don't, don't get self-conscious. So I don't, I don't like to correct people okay. to tell because it's, I don't want you to get self-conscious about something. Okay. So I'll stop doing that. So, but if we think <laughs> of and on as um, equipment, you know, uh, and on cords or buttons and yep. lights and chimes and boards, and I mean, you know, somebody could copy uh, Toyota and install those things, but without a culture, is and, and and I want to explore this more, whether it's around mistakes or errors, like as you as you yeah. put it so well, using mistakes as a vehicle for learning. If the culture is the yelling, blaming, punishment model, it's very predictable that people won't pull the end on cord. Yeah. 
right? So, and, and absolutely got to have that, that, that seems like one of those really important cultural elements that you have to have. I, I, yeah, it's the same thing with, you know, you hear more often, you get what you measure, right? You've heard that probably, we've all heard that phrase. And we know, we know in, whether it's lean or not, but lean is very much like, appreciates this. It's the same thing as how you behave or how you react, you also get, right? That also informs the response. So what you measure, how you behave will inform how the people around you will interact with that. So that that inciting incident, right? That that onboarding and how you behave to it will then then follow through on subsequent interactions. And what you're trying to do, to your point, is to normalize the right behavior, right? We don't want people to hide it. I mean, that's the entire point of shining a light on it. That's what the onboarding is, is like that lantern, that beacon to say, here I am. You don't want people to, you know, you, I know people listening can't see. I just put <laughs> right. my hands in front of my eyes, but like, right. don't want to hide from it. You want everyone to stop and look at it and go, oh, here I am. Here you are. Let me go. You know, let's go and let's go and, and race to that and figure that out. And so that's the behavior you want to encourage. So you got to really appreciate, you got to make sure, and it, which gets deeper into something that we talked about in the previous podcast, but I think is actually, again, because everything you do is a note to the cultural norms you want. I talk a lot about, in my space, psychological safety. Uh And how do you get people to step into psychological safety, which is fundamental to, I would argue, any process, any framework, but specifically to lean is fundamental to lean is psychological safety. Yes. Um, Because you're trying to enculturate the norms around, it's okay to make a mistake because the mistake is a doorway into learning. And learning is where innovation and improvements happen. So, and again, that's your ignorance, right? But that's why I always say I'm comfortable with my ignorance because I understand my ignorance is where opportunity exists, whether it's in a form of improvement or in a form of innovation. So yeah, I mean, lean is all about that. It's all about heart. That's what I love about lean. And that's, and I, I know we, I'll probably say something somewhat incendiary to some of the audience. It's why I'm not a huge fan of Six Sigma or I see Six Sigma as a tool. Because I think Six Sigma to me can sometimes be, and I'm ignorant. So I'm from the outside. It's one of the reasons why I haven't pursued Six Sigma because I do have this opinion, but it, it, it tends to cleave itself. It's seen as more of a quantitative analysis and reduces a very human element of any system production, manufacturing, otherwise into a bunch of numbers. And I think it misses the, the deeper philosophical notes in lean. Now that's me. Uh, Obviously I, I tend to lean towards things that really resonate with me. And I'm a very quant person. I come from applied mathematics and, you know, computational fluid dynamics. So I love quant. I just don't like to apply it um, the way I have seen six Sigma applied. So again, for people who are listening, if you want to talk about that offline, you, you know how to reach me, wardvillamont.com. I'd love to have that conversation. But like, again, not trying to throw the baby out of the bathwater with Six Sigma. I think it has its place, but I, I think I see that more as a tool, not a philosophy. Whereas I think Lean is 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 more as much a a philosophy, if not more so, than a tool set and a framework of thinking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're you're not going to get an argument from me on that. I, I I agree. That's my experience when I was in manufacturing of, you know, kind of seeing Lean and Six Sigma coexist. Um, yep. but you're right. Um, Six Sigma. I would summarize. Yeah, uh, quantitative focus. Um, project-oriented, a handful of experts being mm-hmm. tasked with improvement as opposed to involving everybody right. in Kaizen. You know, so that, that 
again, you know, uh, are there Six Sigma organizations that engage everybody in improvement? Probably. But I think it's hard. I think it's easier to describe a quote unquote lean culture than it would mm-hmm. be to describe a quote unquote Six Sigma culture or people describing exactly. GE of the Jack Welch days, um, which is a very different um, environment than, uh, you know, the last four years under Larry Culp's leadership as CEO. They really are working on a lean culture. Right. But like you said, I mean, I, I wrote a book about statistical process control. I mean, there's nothing wrong <laughs> with statistical methods, but I think exactly. you can use them in the context of, I would prefer this this lean culture that has psychological safety. Like I yep. think it's implicit. It, 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 Toyota actually in, in the book, Toyota Culture, it's kind of secondhand, um, directly references psychological safety. But I think... You, you you can see it uh, implicit, even if it's not explicitly discussed. The the psychological safety to pull the end on board, to to yeah. address the real uh, reality, to run an experiment like that, all does require a high level of safety. Where, like you said, it's it's fundamental lean. When when companies try to copy lean methods without that foundation of psychological safety, like I just wouldn't believe a hypothesis that said lean was going to be effective here. I absolutely agree. And, you know, it's interesting, like you make an interesting point too around psychological safety. It's for you and I, and for the audience, obviously we're going to use the psychological safety because that's important for us to have a conversation about, but it's really important as leaders to recognize psychological safety isn't two words. It's actually embodied through a bunch of behaviors and you don't have to use the word psychological safety anywhere in your company to have psychological safety, but you could talk about it and guaranteed not have it, right? But not talking about <laughs> right. it doesn't guarantee that you don't have it, right? Do, you right. know, does that, right. that makes right. sense? And so it makes total when sense. I, so when I joined like Real Self, I, I introduced you know the celebration of errors, uh, which actually I, I I I stole from at least Amazon. Amazon might have stole it from somewhere else. There's nothing wrong with stealing, right? And it was known as a correction of errors. There's a lot like uh, that I liked about it. There's a lot that I didn't like about it. Or at least I felt like Amazon had lost the way on the cultural, the sort of the subtle cultural pieces that a COE could create or not create if used correctly or incorrectly. And so for the first first thing I did, actually before I even joined, like I want you, you know, they had these incident reports. I was like, I'm done with incident reports. I don't want to see incident reports. I want to see a COE. Here's a COE. Here's how you do it. And they're like, well, it looks like an incident report. It's like, it's not really an incident report. Yes, there's a part of the incident reports in it, root cause and the rest of it, but it's different. And and I did that intentionally because I think a COE is one means to create behavioral or norms that in hindsight, a lot of people would turn around and go, oh, I feel psychologically safe because the way we way we use a COE broadly throughout the company is to create an environment where people feel safe to fail, that it's okay to shine a light on their mistakes and bring it to the weekly business review or the monthly business review or whatever and sort of say, hey, something broke and I need everyone to know about it. And it had a pretty big impact and it impacted a million users. And we lost, you know, a hundred thousand dollars of potential revenue or direct revenue as a consequence of this. And no one is getting yelled for that. Right. You don't talk about psychologically for the first year, but it's, it's, you sort of turn around, turn around and people start, see, start talking about, you know, we have a lot of psychological safety at this company. And again, that's when you sort of know you, you at least have the, the seed of psychological safety planted and growing. 
But if I had just come into the company as an executive and say, we're going to do psychological safety and you're going to feel psychologically safe. <laughs> <you>? <laughs> like, they're, right. not gonna, they're just nod their heads and say, sure, whatever I need to make you shut up and go away. <laughs> and uh, so, so I think that's an important note. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of this seems to come back to mindset and tone where yeah. um, the phrase incident report could be like fairly neutral. I think the way Toyota people use the word problem, like, okay, there is it, there is a problem mm -hmm. okay. that, that that's a noun. It's a fact it exists. Let's, let's deal with it. Yeah. Where in, in some companies, my gosh, like I, even in, in trying to get started with continuous improvement, some people really tense up and say, can we, can we use any word other than problem? Like, well, the problem, problem defect. Yeah, you get into this like 1984 Orwellian world of like, let's just, I, I remember at Boeing, I, I, I had, I had started, I had introduced a tool called Buckzilla and I started talking about defects and like, you know, some of the terminology like defect injection. And I remember uh, one of my peer engineers got really upset with me and took me to task. And he's like, I don't make mistakes. I, it's not a defect. You know, it, it was all around like, it wasn't, it wasn't a rational conversation. And I, you know, I'm autistic, so at that point in my life, I didn't know how to have the emotional conversation that I needed to have with the individual. I was coming from the sort of to your point, like the word is defect. We can call it a bug. We can call it a lot of things, but it is what it is. I can't like sugarcoat and 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 sort of say, hey, I'm not saying you're a defect. I'm not saying your behavior is a defect, but as a consequence of decisions you made, it did create a defect. And we're just here to, you know, like I didn't know how to have that in a way that would bring them along for the journey, but yeah, it's amazing. So that's another piece of it is like learning how to help people through that. And that's, that's sort of the joke. Like one of my titles is CTO chief, chief technology officer. But the joke is, is chief therapy officer. And I say <laughs> that with all love because we all need some therapy. We all need some love. And so much of my job, especially as an executive at a company is to go around and help people feel safe stepping into themselves right? It's okay to, to be a work in progress and for your work to itself be a work in progress. And, uh, that that's an interest, but it's an interesting piece. Like you have to, you have to really, I think, address those kinds of, of cultural norms where it's, oh, let's talk about the mistakes in a way that isn't about you. Right. Like that's leans always like, it's not the process. It's not the people, but it's the process that made the mistake. Focus on the process, right? In some ways it's sort of saying humans. And we always, you know, I always tell my folks like, I know you didn't mean to make a mistake. Like, yes, I'm sure I can go out into the world and find employees who intentionally do things. That's nefarious. That's malicious. Right. That's fireable, right? That's, that's a different that's, conversation. That's sabotage. That's, that's sabotage. Yeah, I think you've used that word before. That's sabotage. We're not talking about sabotage. If we were, I'd have security and it would be a very quick conversation and I wouldn't talk to you again. We're not talking about sabotage here. I know you didn't mean to do that, but- Somehow our process, somehow our tooling, somehow our communications led to you being coincident with a defect. How do we improve the processes such that that doesn't happen again? And so they sort of take the human out of the conversation and put it back on the process. I think it's, a, again, a really smart, like very savvy way for people to sort of like to de-weaponize um, what is oftentimes a very, especially in the beginning where people, you know, we're in a world where we're supposed to be experts and always know the answers. And I think especially for highly educated folks, it can be really hard uh, in the beginning to sort of say, hey, I made a mistake because you're sort of like, I am paid not to make mistakes. Am I going to lose my job over this? And I, you know, which I get, 
I can get the mindset, but you know, you have to teach people to think um, differently, feel differently. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's about that leader response. And, and I think when you, you, you were spot on when you talk about actions that help build that feeling of psychological safety, um, it, you know, uh, Tim Clark, who I've learned a lot from and, you know, is really influential on me, you know, describes the need for leaders to model vulnerable acts, like saying, yep. I, I was wrong, I don't know, I made a mistake, or like, you know, that leaders have to they, lead. They, and, and then when people try to follow, you have to reward. So you model and yep. reward those acts. So if people have their scars and wounds of like, I can't admit a mistake because I might, you know, God, I'm going to get punished. Like you can't just snap your fingers and say, Hey, it's safe now. Don't feel that way. <laughs> you have to bring them through it. And you I think bring- when, when leaders can be honest and admit mistakes, that, that's think- sort of demonstrating what you're hoping others would do. And then when they try, gosh, you better, you better reward them for it, which is, you know, that word reward is similar to celebrate. Mm-hmm. And it's common. It is. It is. Yeah, to celebrate, to reward, to acknowledge, even yeah. to honor, mm. to have grace. Mm-hmm. I I didn't really appreciate until I think I was in these positions as sort of like senior executives at companies is how important culture and organizational behavior really is modeled from the top. Yeah. It's important to have advocates throughout your organization but if you if the top leadership is playing only lip service to it it will never ever get adopted i've seen this over and over and over again the best behaviors and the worst behaviors always get mimicked and they get mimicked from the top everyone takes their note from the top so that is the most important change agent at a company and it's the one that requires the most vulnerability the most openness to make to win make mistakes to own them and I completely agree that it's super, super important for all of us. And I try to treat all my, teach all my leaders, like be vulnerable. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to have a bad day. You know, sometimes I go into a meeting, I've gotten a lot better about it, but you know, it's sort of like, Hey, I'm a little tired today. I might be a little grumpy. If I snip at you, I apologize. (laughs) Or if in the middle, I sort of lose my, I lose my proverbial stuff (laughs) in a meeting which doesn't happen a lot, but let's say once a year, I'm just having a really bad day. You know, I'll just pause and go, wow, I really lost it there, didn't I? I'm really sorry, you know? And if I can, I go, what, you know, I'll sort of go back to what I'm really, you know, here's what I'm really trying to communicate. Yes, I'm upset. I need to think about this some more, you know, let's take 24 hours. I need an hour, you know, sometimes I can, but it's recovery from that and just, and really ask for grace from others and just say, you know, it's okay to be human. I think that's the piece around, that's the piece that I dislike. I was going to use the word hate. I'll probably say hate. Around a certain cultural norm or professional norm that we have is somehow, this is me. This is my values. So not everyone will share this, but because I'm autistic, I find it very hard to ape mannerisms that aren't genuine to me or authentic to me. So I cannot communicate in a way that isn't true to me. Um, like it literally just makes me physically, emotionally, like distraught, irritable, angry, enraged, like just not able to do it in a healthy way. So it's hard for me to show up at work and behave in a way that isn't consistent with the way I would behave personally. And, and as a, 
the fact of the matter is, is like, I'm not the perfect human being outside of work. So I can't come to work and be something that I'm not, which is an imperfect human being. And I think we have too much of a adherence to a professional self versus personal self. And that professional self is sort of this very trimmed up, always has everything buttoned up, has all the right answers, is never wrong, is very confident. And I think it's I think it's harmful, even toxic when taken to the extreme and, you know, learning to be self-aware, self-actualized, be accountable, but also be transparent um, and be vulnerable. I think to me is a very important aspect of myself that I bring to work and I ask my employees to. And that's me. Again, there might be other leaders with other companies and people be like, I don't want to be around Ward, but like just from my, my view from the outside, when I see those kinds of uh, folks behaving that way, I always, there's a part of me sort of breaks and wants to give them a hug and just say, you can be you. Like, you don't have to pretend to be something you're not. It's okay. I'm not judging you here. And that's the other piece, right? That's another key word. You know, we talked about, you know, celebrate, but non-judgmental, right? It's, it's psychological safety is about honoring the truth, not judging the truth, like just respecting it for what it is. And it always be a what can we do going forward perspective? It's very sort of practical, right? It's not like you don't get into the the shoulds. We should have done that. It's yes, we could have done something different. We will do something different based on that learning, but we don't use like wor- trigger words for me like should, which is a judgment, right? That is passive aggressive. It's toxic. It's not useful. It's not constructive. It's counter to asking the person the next time to come to you with a problem. Like, yeah, you should have done that. Okay. The person sort of going, okay, you're judging me. And next time I'll maybe hide this from you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. what you've taught them in that moment. You haven't taught, you haven't like scared them into like doing things right. You've just sort of taught them to hide from you. Like right. just by using the word shit, that's how powerful the word shit yeah. is. And, uh, and, and what, what, what kind of stress or anxiety or other ill effects does that lead to like you'd say that mm-hmm. being really harmful um you, you know you talk about being your authentic self you know i'll go back to tim clark again in his four stages of psychological safety framework stage one is really all around um, inclusion do you feel accepted do you feel respected is i love he uses this phrase is it inexpensive to be yourself mm-hmm. just this kind of just comfort level of do, do people accept you now on, on the other on the other hand, um, and this is not being critical of you, but you know, uh, being your authentic self. If you were losing your stuff every single day, and right. you were to say, "But that that's that's me. That's that's my authentic self." That might be you, a leader. Again, I'm not pointing this at you, but a leader who yep. was doing that and saying, "Well, you know, well, I'm I'm being authentically me. That's good for psychological safety." Well, that might be true for that leader, but not for everybody else. No, I mean, it's, it's, no, I agree with you. And I I think, I think this is a really important point. It almost goes back to you get what you measure, right? Like almost every metric that you have, you always have to have two metrics minimally to counter, to counterpose each other. So like in the definition of being authentic, it's, it needs to optimize for everyone being authentic, not just one individual. It's a bit like nonviolent communications talks about like nonviolent. Interesting thing. Let's take a side on nonviolent communications. One misnomer. It doesn't mean that you don't get to yell. Like, so me having a bad day and raising my voice isn't necessarily violent communications. If the person on the other side is heart centered and still feels like they can be their authentic self, we still haven't like violated the nonviolent communications creed. We haven't, 
actually created a toxic environment. Now, if I do anything that makes you, Mark, step away from your authentic self, then I have intentionally, unintentionally created an opportunity, created a toxic situation, right? So there's a lot of things that we can be doing. And so it's, it's always a negotiation of how we how we interact with people. There's the obvious notes. Raising voice is probably going to be a trigger for some people, especially if they're not your peers in the organization, right? I can probably raise my voice and be a mo- little bit more closer to the emotions with, you know, Jeff, my CEO. But if I went to a person who reports to me, I'm punching down, right? Like I shouldn't do that. Like that's definitely not acceptable to behavior. So it's situational. It's depending on all parties. But that your point being, and what I loved was, is that being your authentic self is low cost or ideally free, right? As long as everyone feels like, hey, I can still be in this meeting and it's pretty free for me just to be me. If you need to yell, that's fine. But if a person feels like they have to close up, then whatever my behavior was violates that that sort of a, implicit agreement that we're all trying to be, all of ourselves be authentic. So, so that's the piece. And that's the piece where you can still say, hey, I was being authentic. But that's where I maybe need to learn how to grow to allow more people around me to also be simultaneously authentic. And as a leader, it's entirely on you to go figure that out. Yeah. Um, I and mean, that's and that's hard work, right? Like we're all works in progress. So right, that's true. Um, myself included, especially. So, but one thing I'll celebrate though, you know, with your story, Ward, of occasionally, you know, getting getting upset, and and you have the awareness to 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 call it out, to apologize, and. It sounds implicit, but you know, giving permission seems like it would be helpful to to give others permission to call you out on it. Absolutely, absolutely. Say, hey, if I'm getting upset and like, hey, you know, it's it's safe to say, hey, calm down, or you know, <laughs> telling someone to not be upset sometimes only makes them more upset. But um, but to call out to to a leader in a lot of organizations that would be an extremely unsafe thing to do. Yeah, I I think I think that's important. It, it was it I think you and I talked about the framework around psychological safety and the stages of psychological safety, which I think you're sort of alluding to and and I completely agree with and I really like that framework. Unfortunately, I can't call it out direct. I know you could. No, okay. But it, it, maybe we could explore that, but it's again, it's it's there's a maturity model you can apply to psychological safety and I think leaders need to recognize, hey, everyone needs to be feel psychological safe and that includes being able to give critique like I need to be feel for you to give critique or insight or observation to to my folks, but they conversely need to be able to feel equally free to come to me and hold me accountable and say, "Hey, you missed the mark here and there." It could be behavioral, it could be decision making, it could be because we're trying to optimize for learning here. We're not trying to optimize necessarily for the leaders to feel good about themselves, right? And that's I think the piece about like it's it's deep work. This is hard, hard work. And I think that's why a lot of people don't do it because it's just, it really requires a, a, a degree of self-awareness and a self-actualization at every level at, in every employee. And it takes a lot, a lot of work. And I understand why people resort to shortcuts and get a very sort of annuity, what I would say annuity based, very short term. I'm going to squeeze value out of Mark. You're probably going to leave me in two years, but I don't care because I'm just going to re- and I'm going to, you're going to leave or I'm going to fire you and I'm going to just replace you. And honestly, that was the considered approach and opinion of Amazon when I was there. It was squeeze, get the juice. If you could continue to give juice after two or three years, great. If not, there's always more, there's more oranges and fruits. And, and it was, that was, that was a philosophical decision. It was, 
whether I agree with it or disagree with it, it was very advantageous to them for a while, right? Because they were very much sort of cost and they're trying to get the most value. Now, if you take a different view, which I do, which is the annuity base, I'm going to be with you, Mark, for the rest of our lives, right? And as long as you want to be with me, I always tell my, my folks, even if you're leaving the company, you're still with me. If you ever need me, anytime in the future, come to me. I will open doors for you. I will make references for you. I will sit and talk to you about anything. Like you and I, I'm taking a lifelong commitment the moment you and I work with each other. So I take the long, the very, very, very lifelong view with every person I have an interaction with. I think that's the right view. But again, it it's it takes more energy from me. You know, it'd probably be easier for me to just walk into rooms and pound a table and say, you know, gosh, darn it. Why isn't it done? <laughs> probably wouldn't use those words if I was slamming the table. You know what I mean? But um, let's try to keep it PG here. Um, you know, it would be easier in some ways, you know, I could be selfish and just sort of say, I'm going to maximize the, the cost to me, or I'm going to minimize the cost to me and maximize the outputs for me. And I'm just going to squeeze everyone around me. And, and I I get some why people do it. I don't agree with it, but it's it is a it is a considered opinion, and it isn't from weak people. Sometimes it's from very strong people who are just very very practical and sort of feel like they don't want to own that portion of the relationship with you, and they're just not going to operate that way. And, and you know, I always tell people is you can self select in just as easily as you can self select out. You know, find your people, and that's that's the last Peter on culture. I always say. Like, I tell you how I operate, and it might, I, I guarantee there's probably people listening to this, maybe, uh, maybe not this group, but I'm sure there's people out in the world that they heard me, they'd be like, I would not want to work for Word. Oh. <laughs> I just want to come to work, oh. do my job. If you got to yell at me, that's cool. I don't care about any of this other stuff. I don't need you to be vulnerable with me. I don't need you to be talking about <laughs> love and, and accountability. That's not what I'm here for. Just give me a paycheck. I'll do my job. You know, and I'd be like, that's great. I don't want you here, but you know, not because you're not an amazing human being, but you wouldn't be an amazing fit for what we're trying to achieve here. And I think that's lean to me, to me, what we embody at real self is like fundamentally a lean concept, you know, at least has the foundations of lean in that sense, from a cultural perspective. That sounds familiar, like for whatever position I'm in to, to, I'm, I'm not trying to judge, but it sounds familiar. Yeah. It's, we're, we're, you know, the, we've had this conversation here. That's um, really about, you know, mindsets and behaviors and cultures. I mean, you know, people can go online and read about the COE template, right? You know, that yep. you know, that 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 part people can just go read. But I, I appreciate how you're filling in details here around intent. It's not so yeah. it's not correct. Back when you people were calling it correction of error, the emphasis is on error, the way we would emphasize problem, defect, like process. It's not correction of the individual of like, you know figuratively holding your dog's nose in it when they've uh, not gone outside before, you know, like, you know, that, that, that behavior of rubbing people's faces in the problem, that's not what correction of error. Yeah. It's, was. and that's definitely not what celebration of error would be, but I can see where that word it's more positive. It's more positive. I mean, I'm trying to set a note of like, Hey, I want people to celebrate our errors. Like I'm really trying to be like, on the nose with it, right? I'm not trying to be subtle with it, but you know, you know, in lean, we talk about value add and non-value add, and you know, that's another one that that curls people's toes when they first get introduced to the value of added. You know, because I always say, 100% of my job, guess what, folks, is non-value add. There's no customer that pays to have me here. Like, yeah. it breaks my heart too. This meeting that I'm telling you about, that I'm telling you about value add, non-value. Guess what? It's non-value yeah. add. Right. Right. But but 
in the same way that we have this nomenclature to help us, I, I, it's, I love the, the, the value add versus non-value add nomenclature and the necessary versus unnecessary. Like it is such a powerful framework. It's the fundamental framework for understanding the world of like how you operate. But from the way you lead, you can similarly have a value add and non-value add. You know, everything that changes fit form of function that changes your employee, the lean into learning is value add. Everything else is non-value add. And then it just gets into whether it's necessary or not. And so, so much of process, training, education, templates, they are non-value add. And ideally, they're they're necessary though, but they're really non-value add. They're an artifact. They're a means towards the thing that you really care about, which is a value add, which is moving your employee towards an innovative learning mindset. And so that's, I think, really important to recognize. These are just tools. Um, they themselves aren't magical. And that's why the adoption of the tools rarely begets the outcomes that you see, because it's it's not just what you use, but how you use it that matters. Uh, it's so important in that. And uh, you can see examples of this. You can think of the recent example of uh, full housing between, is it... Uh, when I say Switzerland and now it's being readopted into California, I might get the country in Europe wrong, but like they're readopting similar processes in California to help with the housing uh, crisis in particular with homelessness. And um, the reality is, is it's not going so well in California. And there's a lot of reasons, but a lot of it is because it's, you can't just take these things out of cultural context and just, mimic the policies and procedures and expect to get the same results. It's, it's no different. It's exactly the same problem, um, just at a different scale. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, maybe one last thing we can explore here. Um, you know, I think, you know, earlier you, you mentioned theory X versus theory Y I'm guessing yep. most, most anybody listening to this podcast in general, or anyone who's made it this far into our episode is not a theory X thinker who's been turned off. I would hope not. <laughs> I would hope not. <laughs> we may have people in the audience who work for somebody who still kind of clings yes. to the theory X mindset, or I could think, Ward, you would not want to go take a job working for a theory X leader. You would no. want Oh, you would want to figure that out during. I, the, I, I've I've I accidentally I've done that in the past. I've definitely where I didn't think they were a theory X, but uh, I mean Amazon very theory X. Manufacturing is sort of classic because I think that comes from that reminds me very much of that military the enlisted versus the officers mindset, right? That it, the the whole thing of and it, yeah, I would say the military is actually far more enlightened nowadays than they were you know 40, 50 years ago. But they used to sort of hold to that of you know only only the officers, which is an analog to only the managers know what to do, and all the folks on the floor, all the people in the trenches, just are lazy and don't want to do the work. So um, yeah, gee, I mean, when I was at GM in the nineties, that was theory X environment and then some, and then seeing. You know the, the the I've talked about in in some episodes here the four the 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 newly trained GM plant manager who came in, yeah, world of difference um, with his mindsets and he wasn't born that way. You know he he had his eyes opened from um, that experience at Numi. But you know allow me to just role play for a second. Have theory X manager absolutely. Again, yeah, this is not me saying that, but. <laughs> um, but okay, we're talking about celebration of error. Okay, Ward, if I celebrate errors, I mean that's just going to encourage more. People are going to be sloppy. I mean, don't we need to we we need to hold people accountable for errors and their bad performance, right? Hold them accountable. I think is uh, success is a is truly 
not at the individual level, but at a group level. And we all have pride of work. I don't think anyone, I, I, you have to believe, and I do believe people really do want to do their best work. No one is going out of their way. So by celebrating the error, we're celebrating the fact that we had an error. And you got to understand error is an entryway into the one thing that is the most precious commodity at any company is the learning. Because the learning is our future and the future is our opportunity. So yes, we want to celebrate those errors. Now, if a person, again, I'll use it with my good friend, Mark, if the person is doing a sabotage, they're doing it intentionally, we'll have that conversation about them sabotaging. But errors in themselves, 99.9999% of the time is not a sabotage. It is an error and it's an opportunity to learn. And as, as you said so well earlier, um, punishing errors or mistakes, whatever word we're, we're going to use, people will learn to get better at hiding them. Get better and at hiding it's, them. It's, yeah. it's, you know, it's this, you know, gosh, I mean, if, if people think punishing mistakes or the, the threat or fear of punishment actually reduces mistakes, like I, like, I don't think they've been anywhere in the real world if they really still hold to that belief if they've been shielded from the impact of their their punishment because like like you said you know we're, we're in agreement here um when we have learning when we celebrate the mistake we can have learning process improvement mistake proofing like it, it's it's the non-punitive path that actually if you were really actually trying to reduce errors the non-punitive path i think logically is superior it, but again we're hey we're complicated people, humanity, the logical thing doesn't. Yeah. Own, right. Yeah. I, I always just think about the, I think we've talked about this before, but I, I think about the, the matrix of I know versus I don't know. I call it the fate or destiny, right? So quick, quick definition for the audience, my definition. So the way I use the, these words. So fate is, I'm not saying these things really exist, but let's just assume you had a fate versus a destiny. Fate is Someone other than yourself, you know, three sisters sitting sitting on spindles have decreed what your life is going to be. That's your fate, right? You're sort of a passive participant in this vehicle called life, and it's just going to be what it's be. It doesn't really matter. Free will, throw it out the window, right? That's fate. Destiny is the opposite. It's you stepping in and sort of saying, taking control of that same vehicle and saying, I am going to go here or I'm going to go there. And no one, you have all free will, right? So fate and destiny. And then what decides between those two things? In my world, I sort of think about what do I know and what I don't know? And you can break that into a little matrix. And you can sort of say, I know what I know, which is things that we're talking about right now, right? We've gone and picked up books or talked to other you know, engaging folks. I know what I don't know. That's the stuff I didn't have that conversation with so-and-so. So I don't know about you know, macroeconomics or what have you. And you know, it's I don't know, I know. That's normally the stuff that, you know, as you and I, Mark, I know we're a little older. Um, stuff we've forgotten, right? Like we've learned, but we've forgotten. It's been 20 years, but oh my gosh. Yeah. It's sort of, it's in there. It's, you know, it's built in. It's like Prego. It's in there. And then I don't know what I don't know. And that's where fate and destiny come from. That's the decision. And the, de the, the, the declination between whether it's going to be fate or destiny is the decision of whether you want to step into your ignorance, which is, I don't know, I don't know, or just let it come to you. And if you just let it come to you, then you're sort of saying errors will be what they'll be. I'm not interested in learning from them. I'm looking to be punitive. I'm guaranteeing that. I'm guaranteeing you will have your fate given to you. If you're willing to accept your, your errors as an entryway into that vast world 
of universe of ignorance, which is a huge black box and shine a light into it, that is your destiny. And that is where, again, innovation comes from and where improvements come from. That's where our future comes from. So you can decide to be passive and be punitive and sit there and have your fate given to you, or you can be active and open, engaged and step into and make it your destiny. But I, that is psychological safety. That's what you're trying to get your employees to is to say, I don't know most of the time, especially if you're in the innovative, I don't know the answers. It's okay, but I'll figure it out. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, if I can go just a little further on this, because we all like books. You've just written a book. It's getting published. That's amazing. That's declarative knowledge, right? You've turned procedural knowledge, all that hard-earned years, decades out there in the trenches to figure this out, and you've written it down in a form that another person can come behind you and read it, right? You've taken your procedural knowledge, turned it into declarative knowledge. That's an amazing asset for everyone, right? You and I both have books all around us. I love declarative knowledge. However, we have an over-fascination. I'm not saying don't go buy Mark's book. Please go buy Mark's <laughs> book. But what I'm saying is, is that we over-rely on, in this country in particular, the way our education system is set up, to idolize the printed book as the only true source of knowledge. Yeah. But what we forget or what we know implicitly, and I want to make it explicit, especially within the lean community, is that true knowledge is procedural. It is learned hands-on. And if you're going to go down the path, if you hear the hammering, sorry, I'm just getting really excited and hammering at my desk. <laughs> but if you really want to be innovative, then you're going to do something no one else has done. You're going to be a trailblazer. It means it's going to be procedural knowledge and you're going to make mistakes because that's how you learn. And so if you're not open to that, you're not open to be innovative. You're not open to making improvements. You are just fated to read from someone else's book and follow behind them. You are not a leader in any definition. That's how strongly I feel about this stuff. Like, sorry, because I completely like took no, the good. conversation, but like, this is my passion. These are the things I want everyone to understand. And to me, that is the heart. This is the heart of lean. All the rest of the stuff is amazing. We can talk about Andor, we can talk about Kanban, we can talk about, you know, Muda, we can talk about value add and non-value add. All those things are amazing, but those are those are tools, those are vehicles to help get to this promised land, which is this huge, huge universe of ignorance that we're going to go explore together and find our futures and make our destinies. To me, that that is what I love about Lean. Yeah, I'm with you. Please, please don't apologize for the uh, the passion and the enthusiasm. <laughs> I share that with you. Um, that's that's why. I wanted you here um, on the podcast. And I mean, there, there's the frontiers of innovation, but even process improvement, like in an existing process in a factory or a hospital, I think back to the Toyota people I've been fortunate to learn from of constantly asking, like basically sussing out the difference between knowledge and an assumption. Mm. And, and, and people kind of get tripped up. Or if I hear, I try to pass along this coaching. If I hear people say, oh, we we know the root cause of that problem. Oh, okay. How, how do you know that? Oh, we talked about it in a conference room when we decided that's the root <laughs> cause. I'm like, I think what you have there is a, is, is, is a hypothesis, hypothesis or an yeah. assumption. How do we go test? You know, we, Well, you have we, an assumption. If you were to go run an experiment on that assumption, you could then say you have a hypothesis, right? <laughs> so but I agree with you. I agree yeah. with you so much. I mean, that, 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 and you know, I tried to you know share some thoughts about this in in the book since since you brought it up. The difference between um, 
knowledge and an assumption. And, and, and more often than not, it's really, it's a matter of go, you know, as Rich Sheridan from Menlo Innovation says, run the experiment. Yeah, run the experiment. Have that and, I, I would, that. and I would submit to you, assumptions aren't bad. No. What no. is bad is implicit assumptions. Explicit assumptions are very valid and very, as an engineer creating a system, I'm going to assume, I'm going to put it in my, my requirements doc, I'm going to make this assumption that this is true for, for now. Making it explicit, I think, is very, very important. All my biggest mistakes in my career come from implicit assumptions where I forgot the challenge and I took something that was an assumption and thought it was knowledge. Right. And that is ultimately always, and that's that's why I just want to make that distinction, is the implicit assumptions are actually the real grenades in the room. And it's always humbling when one of them blows up with you because you're like, I remember <laughs> thinking about that and going, I thought that was that was true. And yeah. you're like, nope, that was an assumption. Yeah. And you thought it was safe not to challenge it. And so, yeah, yeah. go run the experiment, challenge your assumptions, remove the grenades from the room. <laughs> That's well said. So I think we'll we'll leave it at that. Our, our guest today has been Ward Villamot. Um, it's always fun talking with you, Ward. And I'm going to call out one thing here at the end. A couple of minutes ago, you talk about us being about the same age. You, you you made reference to a Prego spaghetti sauce commercial, I believe. Yes, sir. <laughs> For the younger listeners who don't know that. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's probably the 80s. Of, uh, it's in there. You know, it's ma- in there. Where is it? The, 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 I'm, I'm sure it's on YouTube. Like oregano. It's in there. Yeah. Yeah, um, go look at YouTube. Yeah. It's probably from some of this VHS tape. You might remember those. They, they, <laughs> sorry. I, <laughs> before there was streaming, there was VHS tapes. And for that, there was free. Betamax. And we all know Betamax is better than VHS. Let's just, <laughs> can we agree to that, Mark? <laughs> Logically, technically, that seemed to be true. Yes, but, that's the right answer. <laughs> um, HD, wasn't HD DVD considered better than um, Blu-ray? But oh, was- yeah, that's a good one. I, I think, yes, because I think there's some compression that was put on Blu-ray. It's, it, I think it's a question of uh, the encoding. Now we're, now we're geeking out a little bit, but I think it's down to whether it was encoded or unencoded. And I think a lot of times they would encode on Blu-ray. Uh, so I think you're right. I think the HD DVDs, but. Uh, That's what I remember. Don't quote me on that. I could uh, be wrong. Some, I don't. Some of the comments will correct us. I'm yeah. sure. But, but like you were saying, I, I don't know that HD yes. DVD was better. That's my assumption based on a memory. Exactly. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so again, you can learn more. <laughs> about Ward, wardvillemont.com. We'll put links in the show notes, um, different articles. There was a great piece in Forbes about um, psychological safety and celebrating errors um, that, that not written by Ward, but quoting him and talking about this approach. I'll share all of that. So this has been great fun. Let's find a topic we can uh, dig into again sometime, Ward. Yeah, absolutely. And put put in the comments in the podcast if there's something you want uh, Mark and I to dig into. I'd love to hear from folks and do not hesitate to reach out to me. You have the website, Ward Villamont. It's in the in the show notes. You can reach out to me at any time uh, at ward at wardvillamot.com. Happy to talk to anyone. That's that's kinder than making your email villamot at wardvillamot.com. <laughs> you might get less spam if you did it that way. I don't know. That's an assumption. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again, Ward. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.